Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Heimbach. Dr. Heimbach is Senior Professor of Christian Ethics and has served on the faculty here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for over 27 years. He is a fellow for the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. He's a senior fellow for the Cornwall Alliance Scholars and has advised the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and founded and for years led the Christian Ethics Section in the Evangelical Theological Society. Dr. Heimbach covers all areas of his field but specializes in political ethics and public policy dealing with matters such as war and peace, marriage and family, and religious liberty. Besides teaching, he has also extensive experience in public life during the Bush 41 administration and before coming to Southeastern. Dr. Heimbach was Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Deputy Executive Secretary of the White House Domestic Policy Council, and the White House Associate Director for Domestic Policy. Dr. Heimbach, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. My privilege to be with you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your story today. Um, when and where were you born? Well, uh, I can tell you in good authority I was born. But, uh, yeah, about uh, 1950, I was born in uh, inland China during the Communist Revolution in that country. My parents were church-planting missionaries who were working with a, uh, a primitive uh, tribal group in uh, central China called the Hmong. So when uh, your parents, what, what year uh, did your parents arrive in China? Had they been in China for a while? They had been there probably about five years. And um, what mission board were they with? That was, um, well, southeastern where we are right now is Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the Southern Baptists have a, a very strong missionary board and so forth. But actually, I wasn't, I was born and raised Baptist, but not Southern Baptist. Uh, the mission my parents were with was called the China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor. And uh, it's a strong Protestant, evangelical, theologically evangelical mission but it is not denominationally um, uh, identified or aligned uh, missionaries from different denominations uh, work together cooperatively. In, uh, and in this case, it was in China after the Communist Revolution there, and all the missionaries were expelled. Then the China Inland Mission had to change their name, change it to the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and they moved their headquarters uh, from Beijing to Singapore and uh, the work of the uh, of the uh, OMF is is in Southeast Asia. Yeah, Hudson Taylor, I have no doubt, is uh, a name many of our listeners uh, will have at least heard about if they're mm -hmm. not completely familiar with him. A very well-known missionary from the 19th century and and the work that he did. Um, so your family was, or your parents were missionaries uh, in China, mm -hmm. of course. China in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, 
one could say, you know, what decade has China not had uh, <laughs> a, 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 a tremendous yeah. things happen? But in the 1930s and 40s, it was invaded by the Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, after World War II ends in 1945, you then have the communist revolution in the late 1940s up until like 49 and 50. And so... Um, well, actually, in between the two, uh, between uh, the Japanese invasion and the, uh, comet rise, the Communist Revolution, there was a, um, a movement uh, for a self-governed uh, democracy. Um, that so China was under sort of uh, self-independent, uh, you know, democratic rule. Uh, briefly, uh, was it Sun Yat-sen was the uh, the leader, and and uh, you know. Um, trying to remember the name now, but uh, Chiang Kai-shek was, was the military leader. And that government ends up in Taiwan. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your parents uh, are actually arrested by the communist Chinese at the time that your mother is uh, carrying you. Indeed. That's uh, quite a story. Um, I'll just... Uh, Briefly give the highlights, uh, they, they, most missionaries who were in China, there were a lot of missionaries in China, but as, uh, as it got to be very uh, unsettled and the communists uh, were fighting the nationalists and uh, so forth, so uh, most missionaries left China. Uh, but the uh, CIM missionaries chose, including my parents, uh, they weren't forced to, but they chose to stay with the Chinese church uh, and stayed with the Chinese church through the revolution, uh, you know, facing the same kind of risks and dangers that the uh, indigenous Chinese were facing. Um, and uh, they stayed until they were then actually expelled. So they were there through the revolution and were there under communist rule at the very, in the early years when they were just getting settled and uh, things were a bit chaotic. But uh, so uh, they were under communist rule actually already when I was born and uh, they were... Was your, was your mother under house arrest at that time? Uh, well, not quite then, no. Um, I'll get to that bit. But they were, they were traveling uh, actually through bandit-infested uh, mountains to get from the very rural village area where they were to a, a, a city that had a um, hospital. Uh, and that was uh, a week and a half, no, a month and a half before I was due, six weeks before I was due. And so the only safe way to travel was under the protection of a communist army convoy. So they were traveling in a communist army convoy. They, they stopped overnight in a little uh, village that had a single inn. All the soldiers uh, gravitated there, were sleeping all over the floor. And uh, my parents um, had a, what I call a semi-private room because uh, they, were, they were gracious enough to let them let them have a room, but it, the door didn't close, <laughs> uh, and there were there were communist soldiers lying all over the floor everywhere. So um, I arrived in the middle of the night, and there was a shoot on site curfew in the village. Um, so uh, my dad, there wasn't there was a little clinic that had some medical supplies, but he couldn't get out to it, and so uh, he had to deliver me in the middle of the night. Uh, it was later after that. That uh, not not long after that, actually, uh, when they were then, as the communist government got more organized, that they then um, restricted the movements of my uh, parents and they put them under what was called 
uh, house arrest or city arrest, I guess. They, uh, they were not allowed to travel, but they were not behind bars. So they weren't free to come and go. They, 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 uh, uh, they couldn't leave unless the communist government allowed them to. They, you know, they had to stay put. And, uh, and so uh, they were there, I guess, I don't know how many, about a year like that. And then, uh, and then my father was uh, given 48 hours to be out of the country. You know, that's from inland China, so several thousand miles uh, to get out in two days. And then um, uh, he waited for uh, my mother and I uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, uh, about uh, six weeks later, then they ordered my mother and I to leave again only giving two days notice uh, to be out, not to start, but to be out. So uh, she managed to, to travel across, halfway across China with me. Um, and uh, and you're, you're, you were not, health-wise, you were not a healthy baby. Well, I was born six weeks prematurely and um, in, in a non-medical environment. And my dad was not a trained physician. And uh, actually, they, they'd sat through some um, instruction you know, on birth, birth and, and procedures and so forth, but he hadn't listened because he didn't think it was going to be necessary. So literally, my mother had to talk him through what to do. Um, he uh, tried to get some um, uh, clean water and uh, woke the innkeeper up, um, and the innkeeper was going to give him a face bowl. And then when he found out it was for childbirth, Chinese think that that's really dirty, and so uh, they said no one would wash their hands and face in a bowl that had been used uh, for childbirth. So he, he took it away, and uh, the only thing he'd let him use was a foot tub that the travelers walking barefoot you know, on the dirt, dusty roads would come in the door and rinse off their feet as they came in the front door, and that's, that's what he got. So he had to boil some water on a charcoal uh, fire and then uh, try to use the boiling water to disinfect it, and that's what he used to... Uh, to uh, when, when I was born. So to go back just a, a, a little bit, your, not only are your parents missionaries, but your grandparents are missionaries mm -hmm. uh, at this time, and they are missionaries in what is today North Korea. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, at that time, it is occupied by the Japanese and the Japanese army. Right. So tell us a bit about what happens there to them. Um, you know, they they actually had an even more difficult time. Well, that was uh, that was World War II, and uh, my grandparents, my mother's side, they were uh, Presbyterian medical missionaries. Now, on my side, you know, we got quite a missionary dynasty going all the way back to to uh, my great 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 uncle, who was a colleague of uh, David Brainerd mm. uh, in the early. Uh, colonial days of American in in doing itinerant uh, gospel preaching uh, to the to the Indians in the East Coast um, and so I've had quite a heritage that way my mother's parents who were uh, doc both doctors dr. Uh, Roy and Bertha Byram uh, my grandmother was one of the first women to be to earn an MD in America in her generation it wasn't uh, mm. wasn't known uh, but um, they then uh, were missionaries in, in uh, Korea, and they, uh, they both uh, planted hospitals and did medical care and uh, led Bible studies and helped uh, in uh, evangelism. So they, uh, they planted two hospitals in, 
in Korea, but uh, my mother grew up, they were in uh, Kangae, which is a major city in North Korea, and, uh, and then uh, later in Harbin. Um, but uh, they stayed through the uh, Japanese uh, occupation, uh, invasion and occupation, when the other missionaries left. And um, then they were arrested because the Japanese were trying to impose state Shinto. And the, uh, the, you know, here these Christian um, Koreans uh, weren't cooperating. And they say, well, you know, who's, who's, why aren't you cooperating? You know, you know, oh, this is what we believe from our God. Who's telling you that? Uh, these missionaries. Okay, so they, they arrested the missionaries because they figured they were, they were teaching, a, you know, a political revolution. Uh, you know, teaching them not to cooperate with uh, the Japanese, but uh, they uh, they weren't. They were just sharing the gospel, and they said, you know, the God, our God tells us that we can't worship uh, any any person uh, as a God. Uh, only the God uh, that is the Creator, who's the God revealed in the Bible, and uh, and so they uh, they they had a trial by the Japanese. And uh, the Japanese, they started, they wanted to know, well, what, what do you think? What do you, they said, well, what are you teaching? He said, well, we're not teaching any of our own ideas. We're just teaching what God's word tells us. So we'll answer and show you in God's word what we're teaching. Uh, if you want anything else, we're not going to tell you. So they finally, uh, the, the, the trial turned into be a, uh, a Bible study where the Japanese, they managed to find actually a, a Japanese translation of the Bible. And uh, they would mention a verse, and then they'd look it up, and, and so forth. So finally, they persuaded the, uh, the Japanese uh, military judge that uh, indeed what they were teaching was the Bible, but that couldn't be tolerated. So they then expelled them and uh, said, "You need to pack your bags, get out of the country. You can't stay here." And then, while they were packing their bags, uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and then they were rearrested as. As Americans, so so they have the trial mm -hmm. uh, and have been found guilty of being Christians, mm -hmm. uh, and we're getting ready to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, um, like I said, America is pulled into World War II mm -hmm. by the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So your grandparents are arrested uh, by the Japanese. So now they're the second time. A second time. So now they're Japanese. Japanese. Uh, they're in a Japanese POW. Yeah, so now they're, they're you know, uh, enemy citizens that are imprisoned uh, as prisoners of war, uh, along in the same camp with the ones who were, who were there because they were members of the State Department uh, in Korea when the Japanese uh, invaded. Um, so how many years did your grandparents uh, stay in a POW camp? Uh, it was about a year. About a year? Maybe okay. a little, you know, the, the two the two imprisonments together would be maybe a little bit more, um, but they were, but the second time in the POW camp was actually even uh, harsher mm -hmm. conditions, and they were, they were, uh, put in solitary confinement, and they uh, they they were starved, and um, so they uh, when they were finally included in a POW exchange halfway through P through World War Two, so there is this exchange in which. Um, the Japanese and the Americans swap prisoners. Yes. Um, and so your grandparents are those who are included in that swap. Mm -hmm. And so then they they then sail back. The trip is basically around the world. How, how, how long did it take for them to leave Korea to get to the United States? Well, rather than 
leaving Korea and then going across the Pacific to the West Coast, the Pacific West Coast, uh, they went, uh, they took them all the way down uh, around India, around South uh, Africa and up the Atlantic and uh, dropped them off in New York City. I guess in those days, sailing was a very hazardous thing to do because World War II is going and uh, uh, it, the, the oceans are a, a theater of war. And so mm -hmm. I guess they thought that was the wiser trick, trip to make. Um, I suppose. Um, I, I really, uh, I mean, I know, you know, yes, there were, it was combat going on in the Pacific during World War II, but there was combat going on in the Atlantic too. And we had, uh, we had uh, German U-boats lining the east coast of the United States, uh, looking for prey and sinking ships. And so, it wasn't safe to travel in, in either uh, of those ocean theaters. Be that as it may, they arrive at New York, mm -hmm. and um, I always find it fascinating uh, who was waiting for them uh, <laughs> because of the significance that he uh, it, it plays both in uh, uh, evangelical life uh, and quite honestly, he's had a profound impact in my thinking too. Mm -hmm. So. Um, who their pastor was waiting for them at New York City? Uh, tell our tell our listeners who who their pastor was. Well, uh, my my parents were uh, close, good friends and uh, colleagues with uh, Dr. And Mrs. Schaefer, Francis and Nia Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer's had not started Labrie yet. They were uh, they weren't even missionaries yet. They were uh, pastors first in Delaware and then later on in St. Louis, and uh, and so. Um, during the period that my grandparents were missionaries in Korea, the uh, Schaefer's, uh, he, he was pastoring their, their, main, uh, their main supporting church. And uh, so they were praying for uh, you know, prayer supporters uh, of my parents, while, my grandparents while they were in Korea and all, through, the, uh, th through the POW uh, situation and all of that. And so they, uh, they met them at the dock when the POW ship pulled in. And uh, because my parents, my grandparents were very uh, weak and emaciated, I uh, got pictures of them, they, they're really skin and bones. Uh, the uh, Schaefer's took them to their home. Uh, I think they were still in Delaware at the time. Anyway, uh, it wasn't, uh, they weren't driving to St. Louis, it was closer. So they, uh, they took them home and they, they stayed with them for several weeks to recover their health. And in fact, in uh, either Schaefer's book, The Tapestry, which is more of a self, uh, autobiography of their mm -hmm. life and work, uh, she talks about my, uh, my, my grandparents and uh, staying with them and the influence my grandmother was uh, on her. They were just starting their family at the time. And then, and then after that, they, my grandparents, their home was in Southern California and went there and um, then uh, after World War II, uh, they, uh, particularly my grandmother, but they became um, you know, the, the earliest prayer partners of the Schaefer's when they went to uh, post-war Europe to start their work initially with, uh, I guess, of youth evangelism and Sunday school work. And then they uh, uh, went on their own and, and, and found what's become known as the Bree Ministry. And uh, when they were in uh, Waymo, Switzerland. Uh, the chap they built their own chapel, and uh, the uh, the uh, communion table in the chapel for Labrie 
in Waymo is uh, was dedicated to my grandmother uh, because of their role in, in um, their early years of ministry. I have to say, as a um, young Christian just graduating college, uh, trying to understand uh, uh, understand the flow of history and, and what is God doing in the world today, my wife bought for me for Christmas uh, Schaefer's book, How Should We Then Live? Mm-hmm. And I could remember, you know, there are certain books that a person reads that after you read them, your thinking is different. Uh, it, you know, it profoundly affects um, uh, how, how you understand the world. And, and that book had that kind of impact on me. And I'd have to say there's a, there's a lot of people who say that about Schaefer's books. Now, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with Francis Schaefer, uh, uh, he, he would have to be second only to C.S. Lewis, I think it would be safe to say, in terms of, of affecting uh, how evangelicals understood worldview and a Christian way of looking at culture, history, politics, things of that nature. And so um, uh, Schaefer is one of those influential uh, thinkers. In fact, um, uh, we at Southeastern, we have the Schaefer uh, Library. We have his papers here at the library at Southeastern, something we're very excited to have. So <clears throat> you grow up then uh, still on the mission field. Your parents go back uh, mm-hmm. to Southeast Asia. Where, 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 do, you, where do you end up? Well, they, um, um, they had started work in China with the Hmong, and uh, the Hmong are aboriginal to China before they were there, before the Han Chinese moved in. But uh, then when, as they moved in and, and, and took over, they sort of drove the Hmong into the mountains. And, uh, you know, they always are very fiercely independent. They didn't want to submit to, to uh, you know, government by other people. Um, so they're very independent and, uh, and try to stay away. And, uh, but as the, you know, they... Uh, there were wars actually, you know, for I guess centuries uh, with the Hmong and the Han Chinese, and uh, there, a number of the uh, of the Hmong, then because of the pressure and the uh, the fighting and China, uh, you know, antagonistic against them, uh, migrated south into uh, parts of what now are uh, North Vietnam. Uh, uh, Laos and uh, and North Thailand, and so there, it, it you know it, it's a rich people group that's been around since eight, for ages. Actually, they're distantly, distantly related to the Jews because they're um, Semites, descendants of Shem. So they're distantly related to Abraham's, I guess, relatives. Quite remarkable. But uh, but moved the other way, and uh, and so uh, and they preserved a lot of their history orally. They didn't have a written language when my parents started working with them. It was all passed on by oral history. And uh, my father was the one who primarily uh, reduced their, uh, learned the language and then reduced the language to writing so that it could be translated into scripture and so forth like that. So, um, but the, uh, there were different, there were different elements uh, within the, the Hmong, uh, identified really by the uh, embroidery uh, the women use for their dresses when they dress up. So um, they were working with what were called the Black Hmong in uh, China, 
and uh, they were down in North Thailand. There were white mung and blue mung, and uh, and so there had been no missionary contact, no outside contact really with the mung at all. There'd been some uh, in in Laos, just beginning with the China I mean, with the uh, CNMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, and uh, but none in Thailand, uh, none with the white mung, and so. Um, they had just heard the Thai traders would trade for opium, and that was the center of the, uh, the Golden Triangle, the center of the opium trade back then. I guess now it's Afghanistan, but back then it was North Thailand and the Hmong. And so um, they, uh, uh, they, did, they made contact with them and were able to speak through Thai and Chinese uh, before they learned their language, and then moved up and, and lived so I, I literally grew up in the jungle, living as much like them as possible, cooking on uh, you know a wood fire on a dirt floor and palm leaf, uh, thatch roof with the smoke going through it to keep the bugs out, um, and um, and um, running in the opium fields and uh, you know I can I can tell you all about you know how to smoke opium, how to grow opium, uh, you know, what, what, uh, well, if you, when you retire, kind of I guess you've got, you've got a, you've got another, uh, skill set. To well, fall no, back I'm not on gonna, you... not, not at all. I mean, we, we literally, I mean, a lot of the early Christians were opium addicts and, uh, and so they, uh, they would come and sleep it out on the floor in our house and, uh, just writhing in pain as their body was going because what, you know, the opium restricts, the drug restricts your capillaries down, and then when you go off the drug, uh, the blood starts pushing its way through, you know, at proper pressure, and it's just, you feel like you're burning up. It's just very, very painful. So just writhing in agony and screaming all night. I mean, but, uh, you know, that's what it, you know, they got drugs to try to make ease that. They didn't have that there. So it was a very painful process to get to, get to break the opium addiction in those days. So you grow up in northern Thailand, and then uh, this is during the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Indeed, yes. And so um, when do you come back to America? We came back on furlough once every six years. Uh, we call it furlough there. I guess they call it home assignment now. Um, and when I was six, sorry, just finished sixth grade and starting middle school, uh, middle school in those days was seventh and eighth grade. Um, we were back on furlough. I, I did the first part of seventh grade in uh, Pasadena, California, and then they left me in Wheaton, Illinois, which was just inside Chicago, uh, and left me with um, uh, a couple who were, their, their job with the mission was to be uh, fill-in parents for the Mish kids whose parents were overseas. So, so let's put this all in context. Your your parents and you are in Thailand. Uh, you have Laos and you have Vietnam. Mm -hmm. The Vietnam War is really cranking up at this mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and so uh, you have uh, you have you have the civil war of the of Vietnam War. You have the communist insurgency all through Southeast Asia. There is the in fact Cambodia will fall fall to mm -hmm. to the communists. Mm -hmm. There is the communist influence uh, in the area where your father is ministering. Mm -hmm. uh, how, why didn't communism win? In, well, uh, in back area? in those days, uh, I guess that would be the Eisenhower administration and after. Uh, 
they talked about, they saw the, uh, the march of communism spreading from China, well, it came from Russia to China, and then uh, North Korea, and then Vietnam, and Cambodia. And, uh, and so uh, they were uh, fighting in Laos uh, in those days. And then, uh, so they were looking at this progression, and uh, they called it the domino theory, where the, the different uh, nations of Southeast Asia that were independent uh, being, uh, you know, falling to communism, and it was very intentional. The communists were very, very, very uh, methodical in uh, planning because, you know, their plan is world domination, and they were to, they wanted to, you know, uh, start communist revolution, take over the world. So, uh, the next uh, domino to fall would be uh, after Laos, after Cambodia, and then Laos would be would be Thailand. Thailand. Yeah. And uh, the, the plan, uh, the, the method was uh, they sent in, um, they, they took young men from the uh, Hmong villages and took them back to China and filled their heads with indoctrination and added, you know, some of, the, some of the, their, their stories about a Hmong king going to come and whatever. So, uh, the, and then they sent them back into the villages uh, to indoctrinate them in communism and uh, and so that then they could move in and use the uh, the mountains in China in Thailand as a platform then for destabilizing the the, uh, the government in Bangkok capital of Thailand uh, so uh, I was there my parents work was there was just prior to all that and uh, the amazing thing looking back on it was that the uh, my father uh, and mother, but particularly my father, uh, not only worked on the language, but just poured himself. I mean, they shared the gospel. They went on tireless uh, trips from village to village, sharing the gospel, talking to people, and winning converts, and then planting churches. Um, and in the process, he, he poured himself into seven young Hmong men to, be, to, uh, to take over, to, to, to be leaders uh, among their people. And uh, after he left, our family left, and, and he then was promoted to, to be a you know, mission administrator in, in uh, Chiang Mai and then in, in Singapore, and then later on he was, uh, he was uh, uh, North America director for the, for the uh, Overseas Mission Fellowship um, before he retired. But on leaving the, uh, the, uh, the Hmong work, uh, those seven guys, they, they went to Bible school, and while they were in Bible school, they went and they just, they were led by uh, someone, uh, uh, a leader called Tsunghua, and uh, they, um, they just saw it as their mission to share the gospel with all their, all their tribe everywhere, going from village to village, um, just ahead of the communist insurgents coming in. And it sparked a people movement. God, you may, they were just being faithful. Uh, and my dad certainly wasn't teaching them uh, politics, but uh, they were just sharing the gospel. And, uh, and, and then just village after village after village started you know, uh, becoming Christians, just, all, just hmm. like, like a fire. And then as the communist insurgents came in, they met real resistance. I mean, uh, the non-believing Hmong, uh, bought into the lies and the you know the promises and so forth of this ideal you know kingdom that they were going to the communist utopia yeah you know, the communist utopia but uh, the Christians didn't believe it 
and uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't buy in, and so then they were uh, they were they were persecuted, they were shot at, they were run out of the villages, they were killed. Um, uh, if you're not going to cooperate with us, then we'll just get rid of you, and uh, and so there was a there was a period of a couple a few years. You know where they were just they were dying for their faith, and they were stuck between the the communist government who who didn't believe them, thought that they were communist sympathizers, and the communists were killing them in the mountains, and they couldn't live in the villages, um, and and finally it's quite an amazing story, but finally, um, God changed the heart of the general who was in charge of the defense of Thailand, to uh, believe that the Christians were reliable, and he allowed them to move down to the to the edge of the jungle where they would have their backs against the China, against the Thai army. Uh, and they said, we'll arm you and you can be a buffer protecting Thailand. And they also advised the Thai army. Up until then, the Thai army would send, send uh, you know, forays into the jungle and then they'd be wiped out because they weren't jungle fighters. And uh, the, the Hmong said, this is what we, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll tell you what's happening. We'll tell you the, in you know, we'll, we'll tell you how, we know how they think, we know where they are. We can track them, and uh, and so then all of a sudden the tide turned, and because uh, of the Christian Hmong, uh, they uh, stopped the uh, communist political insurgency and, of course, ideological insurgency into Thailand. So the whole domino fall, uh, progressive fall of, of South Asia stopped At in in North Thailand because the Christian Hmong wouldn't succumb. We've been talking to. Dr. Daniel Heimbach, a professor of ethics, which goes to show you uh, how Southeastern's motto is that we are a great commission school. It isn't just our missions professors who care about missions. All of our faculty uh, are dedicated to uh, fulfilling the great commission. Indeed. And so we have been listening to a, quite a remarkable story of uh, Dr. Heimbach about his childhood, uh, that the, the life and ministry of his parents and grandparents. We'll continue this story in a later podcast. My name's Ken Keefley, wishing you a good day.